Hello, listeners. This is the Eclipse Viewer, episode 52, Mikatsu Noir, part one. My name is David Blakesley. I'm the regular host of this program where we take a look at the offerings of the Criterion Collection's Eclipse series of DVDs. These are stripped-down, bare-bones editions uh, that cover some of the lesser-known uh, gems and jewels out there in the cinematic uh, archives of, of years gone by. I'm always joined by Trevor Barrett. Hello, Trevor. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, David. How are you? I'm doing fine. You know, it seems like we've been doing a lot of podcasting <laughs> lately, uh, including some really long and epic <laughs> episodes of the year-ender stuff uh, over at Criterion Cast. And, of course, we finished our own sort of epic mini-series, a three-parter covering the documentaries of Louis Mal, joined by our good friend Keith Enright. Uh, for a three-part, uh, you know, round-the-world uh, survey of, of cultures and, and times past. Uh, but we are here back in the, the you know, very uh, eclipse-friendly comfort zone of Japanese cinema. And uh, to guide us through this uh, exotic and wonderful world, we have a friend rejoining us, Pablo Canota. How are you doing, Pablo? Hello, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me again. Well, thank you, Pablo. I really appreciate having you on. You're kind of like my go-to uh, specialist in Japanese genre film, and uh, it's really great to have you back. Uh, for listeners who maybe didn't tune in earlier, uh, Pablo was our guest. Uh, his, he kind of gave us a guided tour of the warped world of Kuriyoshi Kurahara. We did a two-part series on the Kurahara set uh, several months ago. I can't even remember which episodes they were, but uh, those were that was a great uh, collection of, of films focusing on one director. And we are actually going to, you know, visit an earlier work of Kurahara in this same set. But the uh, the Eclipse series seventeen, Nikatsu Noir, is uh, one of those kind of unique Eclipse sets in that it doesn't really focus on a particular director, but it focuses on uh, films from a certain era and culture, kind of uh, the Pearls of the Czech New Wave comes to mind as that same kind of eclectic, uh, you know, time and place rather than the work of a specific visionary uh, a director or actor or whatever the case may be. So Nikatsu Noir, uh, what are we talking about here? Well, Nikatsu is a studio. It's, I think it's, is it the oldest uh, film studio in Japan, Pablo? Can you verify it is. that? It, it yes. is. It was founded in 1912, I believe. Yeah, so I mean, way back into the uh, early days of the silent era. And uh, from what I understand, and again, you know, please, please jump in with any clarifications if I you know, stumble a bit here. But Nikatsu was a pretty successful studio, but they did kind of uh, go into a filmmaking hiatus in the World War II years or the Pacific Wars. It's known over in Japan. And they, uh, I guess uh, the liner notes here indicate that they kind of kept the ship afloat by just being a distribution house. They basically brought Hollywood movies over to Japan. Uh, which must have been an interesting experience, uh, you know, kind of bringing in the enemy's uh, entertainment. Uh, uh, but they, they they did apparently well enough to keep the business going, but did not return to the production side of things until uh, the early 1950s. And so Nikatsu kind of resurrected its brand and soon became a very pivotal uh, uh well, distributor and, and producer of these uh, kind of youth-oriented tough guy movies. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, uh, film noir from a Japanese perspective. 
So Pablo, tell me a little bit about, uh, well, let's maybe uh, introduce you just a little bit more before we get into uh, the films themselves. Uh, yeah, we we met about a year or so ago uh, online, of course, and uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, what you do, your, your, your reviewing, your cinema studies, and uh, let listeners know uh, who, who we've got on uh, who we've got on board this afternoon? Well, I'm a writer and researcher on Japanese film, uh, mainly in the online section. You can read my work at nippon-kino.net, easternkicks.com, and tasteofcinema.com, and world, uh, world, and sorry, worldcinemaparadise.com would be another site where I've written a few, few articles. In general, I uh, write about Japanese cinema, all Japanese cinema, mainly the 50s and the 60s, and while setting myself this, uh, this, margin of uh, of intellectual study uh, I actually write about everything from the lowest of genre works to the highest of uh, art that there is in classic Japanese cinema uh, I'm, I would be happy if you like to if you would like to check my work out Absolutely, and we will we will include links to all those sites in our show notes. Pablo's also suggested some resources, uh, some books, kind of some of the scholarly research that he's uh, drawn upon, and, and links to those uh, you know those sources will be in our show notes, as well as the usual uh, collection of you know reviews and and uh, articles that I like to research and uh, you know kind of gather together just to kind of create. Uh, for these episodes, a little bit of a database, if you will. You want to hear what other people or read what other people have said about these films, uh, you can dig in and get multiple perspectives beyond just listening to me and Trevor and our occasional guests uh, yak about what we think about these movies. But uh, yeah, so so that's great, Pablo. And it, it is, uh, I think you're just a real natural. Uh, your your uh, appreciation for these films really runs deep. And uh, I really appreciate all the... Uh, you know, the nuggets of, of trivia and insight that you provide. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about that as well. So tell us just a little bit about Nikatsu and their decision to uh, kind of invest heavily in, in the in the alienated youth genre, I think is kind of how it was described in, in Chuck Stevens' liner notes there. Uh, of course, Crazed Fruit was kind of the launching pad for a lot of that. So uh, just go ahead and uh, give us a little tour there. <laughs> so when Nikatsu started production in 1900. Uh, 54, it didn't have a demographic uh, and didn't have a target target audience. So they basically tried everything and but weren't that successful in the beginning until they discovered the youth market uh, with their very successful adaptation of a novel by uh, Shintaro Ishihara, a popular uh, author back then, Season of the, of the Sun. And this was the beginning of their so-called Taiyosoko tribe circle of films, which were films about uh, basically rebel students, young people who do nothing else than having sex and being socially irresponsible. Uh, These films, of course, caused massive uproar by uh, the end of 1956 and so... Nikatsu uh, had to 
sort of uh, tame down the outrageousness of these films and came up with a new brand of youth films, so-called Mokokuseki action films, borderless action films, which were modeled on Western uh, and American genre cinema and basically tried to eradicate any signs of Japanese-ness in their portrayal of Japanese Uh, of the Japanese and Japan. So these films were usually located in international port cities like uh, Yokohama, and the heroes were, wore no uh, kimono, but wore fancy modern suits and drove in sports cars, drank martini and had uh, violent shootouts with other gangsters and the police. And of course we will get into this, but But the greatest star of this uh, new particular brand of films, Taiyosoku, uh, no, yeah, so, no, sorry, not Taiyosoku, but Mokokuseki action was uh, Yuchiro Ishihara, the brother of Shintaro Ishihara. And uh, if you want, uh, or we can... Yeah, the first two films we will discuss are uh, films which showcase the tal talent of Yuchiro Ishihara in his early days as an actor. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a pretty great uh, you know run up to to those these first two films. And just to kind of break down this uh, this two part series we're going to be doing, we're going to be talking about the first three films in this set that were filmed uh, and released in 1957, 1958, 1960. Uh, that would be I Am Waiting, Rusty Knife, the two films Pablo just from 1964, and, uh, and uh, Cold is My Passport, 1967, both starring the inimitable Joe Shishido. So uh, those will be pretty fun to break down when we get to that. But we got to build the foundation first. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, so, so two films really pretty critical in getting things started in this very Western-oriented way, this, this really what turned into a very uh, lucrative and very long-standing Uh, sort of new direction for Japanese cinema. Uh, Season of the Sun, which is not a Criterion release, which I have not yet seen and would really love to, just to kind of fill that gap in my knowledge. Uh, and then also Crazed Fruit, a film I referred to a short while ago as well, which uh, we did re record an episode a few years back on Criterion Cast. This was kind of the big breakout for Yujiro and Mie Kitahara uh, as, as a pair of very indulgent, young, reckless uh, teenagers uh, living off of the the recently uh, gained wealth of their parents, uh, kind of pampered, spoiled brats, zipping around in boats and lounging in the sunshine and just doing things that would have been considered and were <laughs> considered pretty disgraceful and, and you know, kind of, uh, you know, un unacceptable and even unbelievable to a certain extent that young people would be just so slack and indulgent and and disrespectful, especially coming from the, the more traditional perspective of, of Japanese culture. So 
yeah, and it's an interesting trajectory you you point out there, Trevor, uh, Pablo. The um, you know the the wildness of these early movies and how they kind of became a little bit more tamed and domesticated. Uh, sort of a similar tra- trajectory to the career of Elvis Presley, who was you know kind of this swivel hip sideburn you know uh, rebellious character, and then he, of course, in America went to the army came out and did a you know they were still sexy and fun in their own way but they were much more conventional and you know he colored within the lines and and became a little bit more of a safer pop culture figure uh but let's get trevor in the conversation here as we uh, prepare to dig into the films one by one uh how much of this type of film have you had a chance to see in the past trevor and what's kind of your opening thoughts uh as you got in the world of nikatsu noir Oh boy. Um, probably not too much, actually. I'm struggling to think of any. I mean, we did the Koryoshi Kurahara set, but that's a little bit later on and a bit different from these crime films. Um, as he kind of went his own way and, and did his own stories. and and um, But as far as these uh, Japanese gangster movies, I'd have to go back to the Ozu set, probably, to have any 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 kind of bearing there and that was that was about uh, you know 25 30 years before these films came out and quite a different genre quite a different time in film history both in the world and in Japan so this was one of my first experiences with this um, these youth films um, I mean we we talked about Yujiro Ishihara uh, a little bit in the Kurahara set when we were doing that episode because he's in one of those films probably my favorite of that set actually yeah that was a I hate but love the mm-hmm. kind of semi-musical about the <laughs> runaway uh, pop star who just wants to get real and you know do some good for humanity <laughs> and it really does kind of look like a like an Elvis kind of um, a trajectory there, you know, starting out a little bit rebellious, and then, and then you hear have this aspirational, you know, big-hearted um, flick a, little, a few years later. Um, but I was quite uh, quite pleased with this this set so far. I, I we still got two more to to go over next week, but these first uh, first films were pretty surprising. I wouldn't say that, and I think that most people would probably agree. You know, there's there isn't um, isn't much going on within the films themselves, uh, as far as you know, deep messages and really analytical uh, uh, bits and pieces, uh, explorations of society. I think all of that might be more incidental, as the filmmakers were just trying to put together something um, on the fly as fast as they could something that would bring in the audiences and bring in, in some money and just excite people and it it does that you know these are these are fun movies they're twisty plots they're they're um, shot in in unique kind of uh, dark ways um, particularly when we get into the the later ones they've got some stylistic flair that's pretty interesting um, but they were they were very very fun to get into because you do have I, I can see that kind of universality of these they're they're kind of just running on the tropes of crime and and noir uh, you know you've got the femme fatale you've got the the hero with a dark past who's trying to to overcome it but boy it's it's bubbling up you know you've got all of that stuff in in these first two movies in particular but with a little bit of a unique um, some unique variables uh, you've got the youth, you know, that's 
that's a little bit different than I'm used to seeing in a, in a classic American film noir, uh, where they're usually a little bit more hard scrabbled, um, older older characters. Here here we've got Ujira Shihara, who's in his early twenties, as he's you know, and he's already got that dark past <laughs> he's trying to overcome, <laughs> um, and you've got. Um, You've got little bits and pieces that are just unique to Japan. You know, you do have every once in a while some of the older characters will uh, and, and crime bosses will come in in their kimono, um, and the the setting is is quite different. And I, I like that we're on the docks of Yokohama at the very beginning, so that you can kind of step back to to all the films that we've had a chance to talk about, even on the Eclipse viewer, let alone the you know. Who knows how many that have been filmed there, um, and and see how see how this particular time period is is using that place, and with the youth stuff in particular, one thing that I was curious about, and maybe you and Pablo can help out there, um, how much of this you know is similar to what we had in the in the United States toward the late fifties, early sixties, and even in Great Britain, where you really did have these kind of disaffected. Um, teens or young adults in in America and in Britain, um, you know things like Rebel Without a Cause or even A Hard Day's Night. Um, you know, born either either very young when the war was going on and and um, and then or even born after the war. It's a it's a, it's an interesting time period I think in the world as as we get these these youths starting to to assert themselves and I'm, I'm just kind of curious if if either of you got that same kind of uh, uh, sense uh, with these films and I think you know if, if we step back and, and really dug into this Nikatsu uh, marketplace how much of that is similar to what was going on uh, here in the West yeah <laughs> well for one thing uh, Japanese were Japanese film, the Japanese film industry was much more prolific in their output of films centered around the youth. Uh, as I've touched up upon uh, before, there was a whole market targeted at the youth, a whole market which sought to explore the feelings of the youth, while, while one could argue that in America there were relatively few films uh, only dedicated to the feelings and and dreams of the youth, and of course here Nikatsu uh, sought to fabricate, literally fabricate films uh, on a conveyor belt, which all were, uh, which all explored the youth and which were all targeted at a youthful audience. And so one difference between Japanese and American filmmaking during that era was the sheer masses of films that the Japanese created about youth, about the youth. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great observation. I mean, uh, it's noted that Ujiro Ishihara produced or he was at least cast in nine films in the year 1957 <laughs> and <Yes>. 16 <laughs> films overall between 56 and 58. That's a phenomenal output. Even if even if some of those roles, and I have no idea if they were all like lead starring roles, probably they probably t- sought to maximize his 
appearance in as many movies as they could, or maybe they were just some, you know, supporting roles or, you know, even maybe, you know, cameo appearances or whatever. In this film, Yujiro is front and center the whole time, and I think he probably was in the majority of films that he was cast in. So uh, I I believe so too. He's just cranking them out, and and he has an intense like. There's a physicality like the fight scenes uh, that that he gets into. Uh, this guy really knew how to swing his fist. He was not just a. In fact, he really wasn't a pretty boy. He does have a striking appearance visually. His teeth are kind of notoriously a little bit crooked, a little bit jacked up there. <laughs> uh, but but he's got a you know he's got a charisma about him. Uh, you know he's lean, he's trim, he's tough. Uh, he, he's got a vulnerability, and then of course Mie Kitahara is is gorgeous. She's 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 slender, elegant, just has a very nice poise to herself, and uh, a re- kind of a real classiness, you know, sort of a an aspirational figure. I'm sure for a lot of young Japanese women who, you know, are looking for sort of a new a new identity, a new presence about themselves uh, that is not as traditional. So, so, so she looks good in, in Western attire. Uh, she's fashionable. She's sensitive and all of that. Uh, so, you know, but, but, but the roughness of, of the milieu that they live in. And I also think about, you know, the differences maybe between American and Japanese culture in terms of their material, uh, you know, benefits or, or the, the, the comfort level, if you will, the affluence, um, you know, think about Ozu's film Good Morning, where there's a there's a big thing about getting a TV in the house and, and how a lot of households still don't have TV. So at this time, going to the movies really was a big social event for young people in Japan, whereas in America, there probably were more households that had TVs and going to the movies uh, was a thing to do, but the, the studios were not as... Um, focused on appealing to the disaffected youth. In fact, there probably were some studios that were trying to, you know, uh, ignore that or or, or, or to uh, produce entertainment that was a little bit more socially redeeming. And so uh, it's just a difference in sort of the, the value set. And, you know, Japan as a society was much more uh, hard-pressed and devastated by the war than the American society was. I mean, they, they saw a lot more destruction and chaos and poverty and suffering in the aftermath than the American children ever did. So uh, even though the American youth went through their own disaffection years later in Vietnam as the 60s kind of got rolling, uh, the Japanese youth, I guess you could say, had a head start in terms of that bleaker outlook on what the adult uh, phase of their life had in store for them. And that's exactly what you see, I guess, if we want to get into I Am Waiting, uh, which is the story of two young people, uh, each of whom have a, a a marketable talent, you could say. Uh, she is a singer, uh, but uh, she's, you know, having to resort to singing in kind of dive bars and gangster-oriented nightclubs uh, in order to exercise her gift. Yujiro uh, or Jijo, his character name in the movie is is a boxer who's you know got that that fighting talent. He's he's tough. He's fearless. Uh, he's ferocious, and and he could have been a contender. <laughs> but he, yeah, there uh, we he, go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right. He he uh, he ends up slaying a a, a man in a bar brawl. Uh, he knocks a guy out, and the guy ends up dying from his injuries, and he's just shaken by the fact that that he's taken a man's life and of course there's some you know there's some uh you know scandal attached to this episode as well and so 
they're both a little bit on the lamb. And so as the movie opens, you know, you don't really know any of those things until you get into their backstories, but you see this young man kind of leaving a kind of a dark, uh, you know, dockside bar or restaurant, uh, just some kind of a, you know, little run, you know, roadhouse type of thing, except it's right next to the harbor in Yokohama. And he's whistling his tune. He's, he's, you know, walking down the streets in this trench coat. And when he gets back, uh, after he's mailed a letter, he sees a, a young woman in her own little, you know, raincoat out there, you know, pondering uh, the waves in the middle of the night. And you wonder if she's about to dive in a la vertigo or something like that. But, uh, but he you know, he saves her and he brings her in and he hears her story. I also think about uh, Port of Shadows, uh, you know, great uh, French, oh, yes. uh, poetic realism where you know you've got Michelle Morgan, this young alluring teenager, and that in that film she has this kind of plastic see through raincoat and and she's alluring and gorgeous and mysterious and you know there she is in the middle of the night, kind of you know her life is on the line and and there is something. You know, incredibly attractive from a male perspective about about encountering a woman who's you know clearly needy but also beautiful and and maybe open to uh, someone's guiding influence, if you will. And have so you, you watched got... uh, something wild yet? The most recent Criterion release that David? No, no, I, <laughs> okay. I have not. Okay, all right. all right. we put got a, another put a pin in that there, one yeah. then. And... <laughs> okay, excellent. Nice uh, tie-in with some of the newer releases that we're uh, just not beginning <laughs> to enjoy. So, so that's that's the setup for I am waiting. We've got these two young loners who are you know really trying to trying to find a direction forward in the world and for Jijo his his outlet is actually escaping Japan he just needs to get out altogether and he wants to start a new life with his brother at a at a plantation that uh he's going to buy and they're going to farm some land and and move to Brazil which is another plot thread from uh Kurosawa's uh, I live in fear uh, what's the what's the other the more literal Japanese title? The record of a human being, or something like that. Yeah, the record of a human being. Yes, right. Something so, uh, like that. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll, we're going to be getting to those films uh, that to that film later in the post-war Kurosawa set. So I'll kind of reserve my thoughts. But it's just very interesting to see these different influences uh, and these different traditions, if you will, of, of uh, cinema kind of coming together. You know, the, the hard-boiled tough guy, the boxer who's kind of, you know, down in, down in the dumps and trying to redeem himself. And then the, the young woman with troubles of her own, but she sees a, a man who maybe could use her healing touch. And so there's a little, little touch of romance. There's, a, there's an intrigue about what happened to the guy's brother after he sees that the letters he's been mailing to Brazil have all come back, addressee unknown. And then, of course, you get into further intrigues uh, as we discover what happened to his brother and, uh, and the, the bad guys who sort of have a common link in menacing both the boxer and the uh, the singer, the the canary who forgot to sing. <laughs> ah, yeah. So, yeah. So, 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 Pablo, tell me a little bit more about "I Am Waiting." What are some other little nuggets or, or standout moments that that uh, you know kind of caught your attention, or that you want to bring our bring to our attention? Well, let me just uh, really quick get back to uh, the uh, annual ticket sales in Japan, in Japan, sure. because I uh, just read a statistic which says that the uh, annual ticket sales in 1958 were uh, one 
1.4 billion sold tickets in just one year. So that goes to show just that goes to show just how popular Japanese cinema was wow. at this so time. People so, were spending a lot of time in the theater. <laughs> yeah, incredibly. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and about the film, I was somewhat reminded of Casablanca uh, with the uh, bar, which somewhat represents a safe heaven for several outcasts of society who all struggle with their dark past. As you mentioned, the canary who forgot to sing, and the doctor who killed one of his patients, and of course Ishihara who killed someone as well. And I, in my opinion, the movie very well captures a certain mood of loneliness and of of melancholy. It's a very atmospheric film, and it this is even more impressive since it was uh, Koryoshi Kurahara's debut 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 feature, his first film, and he always acquits himself quite well, in my opinion. Also with this very precise narrative, without many unnecessary subplots, without much filler material. So I actually really liked this film for what it was. A, well, somewhat generic, but yeah, very, very atmospheric, atmospheric uh, work of genre cinema. Yeah, I, I agree, I, I, and I think Kurahara's work was 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 quite admirable. Trevor, what are your some of your thoughts on I Am Waiting? Um, well, first off, I was curious if you know what the if that's a literal translation of the Japanese title, or if I Am Waiting comes you know from something else. Anybody? It's a literal translation. Okay. I, I do like the title quite a bit. I like this state of limbo these characters find themselves in. Um, both and for for various reasons, you know, they're they're waiting for something better in their future, but they're also waiting to to hopefully you know get further away from their past. You know, every every day is another another bit of buffer zone between uh, what's happened to them and hopefully a little bit closer to what they're hoping will come. Um, but I like how exhausted they are. Again, these are these are young people. Um, they aren't. They're not forty-five-year-old men who have been through a, a couple of divorces and have, you know, blasted out their their throats with cigarettes and brandy. They're they're young, and and that's an interesting perspective for me because you get Jijo when he and um, and uh, May's character. I can't think of her name off the top of my head. Um, but when you get those two starting to form a connection. And tentatively, you know, acknowledging that, hey, there's a relationship here. I really like the scene where he says, well, it's not real. We both know it isn't real. It's going to go away. <laughs> but because I like you so much, I'm going to pretend it is real this time. <laughs> that is a really interesting perspective, um, especially coming from, you know, just this young, young boy uh, who's uh, like like as David introduced, been through quite a bit. Already murdered somebody, um, well killed. I won't say it was murder, but uh, killed somebody. And um, and and yeah, you know, Pablo's talking about the the plot and and how Kurahara has definitely 
um, equipped, you know, acquitted himself very well with this film. Is in terms of style, you know, the the plot is a bit of a of a generic plot. In fact, I I had to watch this one and the Rusty Knife each a few times just so that I could keep the distinguishing fa- features from each other. Um, they're not even made by the same um, filmmaker, but but the you know the characters are are very similar to an extent. You know, the, you've got those those um, char- young characters with their past and trying to get away from it. And I, I think I, you know, never, it, I never had any confusions as I was watching them directly, but after stepping away from them for a few days, they do kind of start to blend together. And I, I was kind of worried even just yesterday. I thought, do I, <laughs> if I'm called upon <laughs> to run through one of these films in detail, will I slip up and, and um, say something that happened in the, in the rusty knife went on in I am waiting, and um, I think I'm okay now. But, but they they do kind of run that risk, and I, I wonder how many of these films really were just like, hey, just throw them back in. You already know what um, what Ishihara's character is going to be. Um, just get some other bad things to happen to him. <laughs> and well, oh, go ahead. So, well, most of them were that way, simply because as scriptwriters were supposed to write a film every two weeks, and every three weeks another Yuchiro Ishihara film was put uh, on screen. So, of course, uh, the films had to be made from a proven formula, which was rarely uh-huh. varied, varied. So, yes, that's <laughs> they were generic, definitely. <laughs> Well, and you, you know they work. They're going to get people in there for at least a little while, and then if it starts to slow down, we'll we'll throw something else out there. You know, this is like um, studio era Hollywood on steroids uh, to, to exactly. me. It's like we we think of how how those schedules were, and how many how many movies did James Cagney have to do at the beginning of his career? Oh, that's just so many, and um, the directors are just spitting out films left and right but every time we talk about the japanese uh, system i think boy this is like treble <laughs> what oh, they yes. were doing, doing in hollywood if not even more than that um but but at the same time i, I say that you know and the, the plots are interesting because they they can go in such outlandish you know really convenient um uh, directions as far as convenient for tying together plot um, plot ends. You know the uh, uh, these characters who didn't really know each other at the beginning of the film have a little bit more in common with their pasts than than you would think, um, and it, it all ties into the brother as well who's off to Brazil, and it's kind of fun to see how those things come together. It's it's a bit ridiculous, uh, but still entertaining and and. And fun. So I, I guess I would um, would say that you know these films were all great to get into. I really appreciate a new story. You know, a new bit of story about the history of cinema in Japan. Um, and, and thank goodness the story. You know, the films themselves are fun and interesting because that made it all the more delightful. Even if that, you know, the films themselves almost become secondary in my appreciation of this set and what it's trying to do with its story about Nikatsu Noir. Well, yeah, some interesting thoughts, that, you know, as I'm kind of hearing your dialogue here. You know, the, the pace of filmmaking it really is a lot like TV. We've already talked a little bit about how, you know, this frequency of, of uh, production and release, 
you know, followed formula, and that was a source of attraction and and comfort and 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 enjoyment for the audience. Just like we watch a a, a branded TV show, if we watch a sitcom, we know where we're going to laugh. If we watch a, a a mystery or a cop film, we're going to or a, a TV show, we know that there's going to be a bit of a puzzle, uh, a tracking down of the criminal, and then a resolution at the end. And you sort of just enjoy that process. And I think that's where these films. You know that's where their comforts and and, and pleasures are found, uh, but I, I did appreciate the the well, atmosphere as well. Go ahead, Trevor. Yeah. Well, kind of on that note, you know, it, it's interesting. I I did not watch Full House when I was younger, um, back in the nineties. So, but I, so I'm, I'm bringing this up just because of the interesting thing. But my wife did, and when the Netflix series uh, came out and kind of rebooted that several years later. It's, I mean, it's stupid. It's ridiculous. And yet, because it follows that kind of comfortable formula, you know, we watch it. The, the appeal is instant. It's like, oh, I got I to check this out. I got to go back. I mean, I remember when they were remaking Brady Bunch movies yeah. back in the 90s. Oh, I had to see that. Well, Pablo, we, you know, we just grew up on that stuff, you know, each generation. You've got them too, Pablo. You you have oh. these in your past too. Yeah, I, I had Dragon Ball and all this anime stuff back in the 90s. Sure, sure. And, so, now, and now <laughs> studios are making live adaptations of that stuff. Power exactly. Rangers is about to come out, oh. you know, all that. <laughs> but just your thought on formula. I mean, you watch yeah. those episodes, and it's true. It, they're very much uh, a, a to B um, plot line. You've got the same, you know, the same, you could probably run the same laugh track or ooh, ah uh, track at the, <laughs> at the background of those, but there is something something comforting and something that kind of just uh, a rhythm get, lends a bit of rhythm to to what you're going through and um you know you, you get the fun out of it not because it's always unique but because of the comfort and also the little variables that they do throw in there the yeah, the, the little the, the potential twists, for the variations yeah that's, the, that's the details uh-huh. exactly well yeah and, and i also uh, go ahead Pablo. Yeah. Sir. and i also feel that it somewhat misses the, the point to criticize these films for their generic content because in many ways it's the, as you said, the, the details, but also the casting and the technical, uh, the technical experience and and really proficiency that these films display that makes them so very watchable for me. And if yeah. we speak about cinematography in Japan, then uh, I just go out there and state that Japanese cinema had the most brilliant uh, cinematographers uh, in the world at that time. There are so many absolutely brilliantly photographed films during that period and so many absolute wonderful uh, cinematographers. Uh, Think of the films of Mizoguchi, Ozu, uh, Kurosawa, you name it. It's really really astonishing uh, on what a technical level even the lowest uh, Japanese genre films uh, were at the time. Well, well uh, these just... guys are working at a very prolific rate, so they're always having the chance to master their craft. And I'm sure they, like any other person working in the creative arts, wants to try new things. They want to. They've got an idea. They want to check it out. And and this film is full of 
really beautiful moments. I, I definitely agree with what you say about the atmospherics of this film, uh, the, the 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 strolls that uh, uh, Ishihara and Kitahara take along the docks. The the there's that striking scene that's kind of featured in the menu of of the the two of them in kind of silhouette there with the with the you know the backlighting uh, of the harbor in the background and just kind of their their profiles in black there. I think of that scene where Jijo uh, uh, is kind of leaning up against this big concrete, uh, you know, kind of a, a pier or jetty, and, and uh, Saiko, the female character, she's uh, standing below him, and just just the way the the bodies are positioned, and just you know the way Jijo uh, slouches his shoulders and dangles a cigarette from his lips, and the the the, the tough guy moments, you know, where he's you know, kind of staring the guy, you know, who's got a got a gun drawn on him, and he just kind of, you know, swaggers up there and takes the gun out of his hand. Just that that coolness factor is is really strong here, and and really through all these films, it's it's the it's just the the the, the movement and the energy, uh, kind of kind of uncoiling itself, and and uh, you, you just take a lot of satisfaction just from that process playing itself out without having to necessarily think too hard about the. The larger uh, social messages being sent. Although, having said that, I think there is a sociological message here, and it is one that I will even say is is somewhat applicable to our times. And that these films, kind of a common theme, is that from the young people's perspective, in, in particular, uh, the plots have a lot to do with uh, their discovery that seemingly respectable. Uh, men in authority and positions of privilege and power in society uh, by all external appearances seeming, you know, uh, you know, good guys who are doing the right thing, but they're secretly running shady operations, extorting, blackmailing and, and, uh, you know, kind of, kind of playing dirty uh, behind the scenes. And so you're, you've got young people kind of discovering, uh, perhaps with a little bit of a cynicism about just kind of how corrupt the adult order really is. And beyond anything that has to do with today's American politics, I'll just sort of let that down and just like <laughs> sort of float out there uh, and, and leave it leave it be for now. Well, I, I will say that throughout these films, I kept wondering, what does my father-in-law really do? <laughs> you know, he, he runs a respectable, respectable business on the outside. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> yeah, it was, it's, that, that's that's true, and I, I like that that point. I thought of it more as a, as a comical thing, but you're right they they do keep fine. And in fact, those are usually the characters wearing a kimono. Um, oh yes, sir. so. Yeah, well, that, that was the way, perhaps, of the Japanese studio uh, to cater to the youth market, who I'm sure were really intrigued, intrigued by this sort of uh, disrespectful treatment of, of the elderly, basically. Uh, well, these young Japanese back then, of course, grew up on Western values and entertainment, and I'm sure many felt displaced in the Japanese society, which back then and even today is a very conservative and uh, even regressive society, at least in some corners, at least when uh, the government, Shinzo Abe, we... I won't uh, get into politics, but it's a regressive society. And a few uh, years later, 
this uh, this frustration of the youth with the uh, the elders should uh, also be sort of uh, reflected uh, in the youth protests of uh, the 1960s when extremist groups uh, emerged and uh, giant student student uh, revolts, revolts took place on the streets. So at the time of this uh, at the time of when uh, I'm writing was filmed the students students may have been happy to just watch the films but only a few years in the future they would actively rally in the streets so yeah yeah and when we talked about the uh, Nagisi Oshima set we definitely got into some of the political uh you know, rebellion that was going on, and and yeah, some of those films very really directly touch on that. I mean, even with their incorporation of you know Western folk music, and and uh, oh, what's the one? I can't remember the name right off the hand, but set in the winter time that opens with the anti-Vietnam War protest. Uh, oh gosh, well, anyways, people can figure that out. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's a great that's a great uh, lead in there, Pablo, with just kind of the 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 roiling turbulence of, of the of the youth culture uh looking for its release looking for you know to be taken seriously and uh you know trying to find its own way and so yeah and and you see these films uh, in some ways especially through Suzuki Oshima and others uh Imamura would be coming up fairly soon um uh, who's the other guy uh well, Teshigahara, he's kind of a more artistic style, but, but Imamura, Shinoda, right? Um, you know, these films were really angry and 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 really oh, kind yes. of outrageous, and in, in, uh, you know, be, becoming increasingly so, even to the point where they started upsetting the studio bosses because they just wondered how far they were going to take this. But that's <laughs> maybe a conversation for another time. Uh, but certainly, you see the seeds of dissent being uh, planted here. Uh, why don't we Why don't we switch gears and uh, any final thoughts on I am waiting, or do we want to just get into Rusty Knife? Well, let me just uh, a quick side note: uh, the guy who plays the bad guy, Shibata, uh, is Hideaki Nitani, who later also became a small uh, star of Nikatsu's so-called Diamond Line of actors, of which Yuichiro Ishihara was part of, which was. Sort of a lineup of promising youth idols, matinee idols. And Tidiak Nitani, who here plays a bad guy, later on became also, for a short period, a uh, youth star, despite being over 30. So, uh, just a little unnecessary side note. <laughs> no, those are, those are great. I just love those, <laughs> those little, little, little nuggets there. I also just have to say that that fight scene towards the end of the film uh, uh, is great. I just, there's that one moment where Yujiro just kind of gives a roundhouse punch to the guy holding the suitcase full of money and the doll, the bills just fly all over the place. And it's just, it, Tarantino must've just eaten that stuff up, yeah. you know, just, <laughs> as well as many other fans uh, of, of lesser renown, but it was just what a, what a classic moment. I mean, just brilliantly conceived uh, the cinematography capturing that image. Uh, it just kind of, you know, imprinted on my memory right away. And I've just loved that moment ever since. Uh, just kind of this nice culmination uh, that the movie sort of, you know, leads up to that point, and ta-da, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> and later in the box set, we will find a very similar ending to this one, to uh, 
foreshadow for a bit or for a minute. So, Pablo, uh, you you uh, want to lead us into Rusty Knife? Tell us a little bit about uh, this film. It's another uh, Yujiro Miyakitahara tandem, but uh, I'll let you take it from there. Well, uh, on the outlook, Rusty Knife seems like an ordinary uh, ordinary B movie, but uh, it was actually one of the most successful films of 1958. It was. Uh, one of the first really, really big uh, smash hits for Nikatsu. Actually, it was the seventh most successful film of 1958, crossing uh, more than 240 uh, million yen, which translates to uh, about $700,000. Uh, mind you, uh, p- uh, money from back then, so... I don't, I don't know the infl- wow. inflation rate, but much more, of course, yeah. in today's money. And probably and a movie ticket was along the line of like fifty cents or something. Yes, like that. it was, it was ex- very, very cheap. <laughs> yeah, so it was incredibly. Uh, it was more successful than many triple A titles, despite being having probably not even a fraction of uh, the later later films. Uh, uh, so it follows uh, Yukihiko Tachibana, played once again by Yuchiro Ishihara, who, together with his partners in crime, Makoto, played by Akira Kobayashi, another great star of uh, Nikatsu's uh, Mukokuzeki action films, and Shimabara, played by Cho Shishido, uh, witnessed the murder of a, of a councilman committed by a notorious gang of Yakuza. Uh, several years later, Yukihiko and Makoto decide to go straight and open a bar. However, Shimabara tries to blackmail the gangster boss instead, uh, the gangster boss who was responsible for the killing of the councilman, and promptly is killed off by being pushed in front of a moving train by the boss's henchmen. Uh, after the police gets wind of the murder, they demand the help of Yukihiko, but uh, Yukihiko uh, doesn't want to have it. He refuses adamantly uh, to participate in the search for the murderers, murderers uh, simply because he's so tormented by his horrible criminal past and the death of his girlfriend. But uh, the death of his girlfriend soon leads to him reconsidering, uh, since the murder case might might be linked to uh, his girlfriend's death, his ex-girlfriend's death, which was uh, raped and killed by maybe just one, maybe more, I won't uh, tell you, uh, of the gangsters that uh, follow the notorious gangster boss that killed the councilman. So, uh, just a quick summary. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, that's that's great. I mean, it's a, it's a good lead in, and it definitely sets the stage for the for the intrigue of uh, of now you you know, you 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 have uh, you know Yujiro in a in a you know in a criminal role. I mean, he is a guy who's done some bad things, not just accidentally as the as in the previous film where he's a boxer who's you know rage got the better of him but now he's been a kind of a, a paid thug he's been a you know corrupted you know criminal but he is trying to go straight he is trying to amend his ways from his wayward youth 
And uh, and again, we have that same dynamic of uh, Mie Kitahara, who really looks like she's grown up considerably from one year to the next. Uh, her hair is shorter now. Um, you know, she's always you know she always carried herself with this kind of uh, classy poise and all of that. But here, you know, you you really see that she's. Uh, you know, she's becoming uh, a, a, an adult woman, a, a respectable woman who's, you know, uh, her her ideals and her motives are pure. She She's not somebody who's really sullied herself, but life has uh, dealt her a, a, a tragic hand. And again, we've got the, uh, you know, the the bad guy, the, the gangster boss who's running a trucking company as a sort of a front operation. But we're we're still in that kind of gritty industrial milieu. There's you know, shipping and you know, just all this kind of uh rough trade that this you know, this business going on. Uh that just kind of uh, you know shows the kind of uh the pressures that young people are under uh just again trying to find their way in this world. Um uh, well, Trevor, what are some of your thoughts as you kind of got into Rusty Knife? Well, I, I, I like the the idea of, of, you know, witnessing a crime and getting paid to keep it silent for years and, and you know, all the troubles that that brings. So I was, I was pretty intrigued by the first probably uh, three quarters of the film. Uh, but this was kind of, I think for me, the, the weaker one of the set. Maybe, maybe it was because... You know, it seemed that I don't know. It, it it was it was a little bit more difficult for me to 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 not to care. That's the wrong word. I don't want to say care, but but because the the plot just keeps on kind of spinning around and getting out of control and taking it to new places, it, it felt um, maybe I noticed a little bit more or cared a little bit more about the artificiality of it all. And wasn't quite as intrigued by the rest of it, by these variables as we kind of talked about in I Am Waiting. Because this one, this one didn't do a lot for me. Um, you know, we, we've got uh, the, the main character with his past, trying to get away from it. Um, the, the, the femme fatale or the, the, the you know, the, the girl he becomes interested in with her past and, and kind of everything coming together in a way that... Um, you know, in this particular case, wasn't quite as interesting for me. But I will say, I still really, really liked watching our two stars uh, perform oh, yes. with one another. Um, that's something that I think is is very unique in these in these films. And you know, it, it, I, it's not surprising to learn that um, you know, not very long after this, they got married and um, started their life together, which. Uh, you know, only only the, the relationship only ended when um, when Yujiro Ishihara died uh, about 25, 30 years later. Um, so they they really do have some some great chemistry going on throughout the film. It that's believable and that's fun to watch because you know it it, it works so well. So that that's kind of what I took away from this one as far as the outside um, bits and pieces. Uh, whereas you know the story itself, I. I found it more disposable, perhaps, than the other ones. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, they're kind of like young. 
they're young royalty of Japanese pop culture, the two yeah. of them. And, and I, I wonder if some of the commercial success of this film wasn't somewhat so much inherent to the film itself, but it's because Yujiro and Mie had become such a iconic couple. Like, everybody just had to see the new movie, you know? And so there's a little bit of boilerplate going on here, but it's just, you, you got to see what, what the new the new thing is and there definitely are those those great moments but i you know just it's just like a lot of it's the follow-up to a lot of breakout pop culture items sometimes it's the follow-ups that do bigger box office because everybody's there now but it doesn't maybe resonate in the popular memory quite as long mm-hmm. yeah and it's definitely pleasing if you went to watch these two you got your money's worth still <laughs> yeah and well, what made the film for me was that, in my opinion, it somewhat refined, refines Yujiro Ishihara's persona, on-screen persona. Uh, uh, the film was only shot one year after I'm waiting. But didn't you think that Ishihara somewhat looks more major in this film than in uh, the last one? I think his Persona is even more brooding, his conflict even more desperate and more yeah, more 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 unfortunate in some ways. And well, Yeah, he's he's his his conflicts run deeper. I mean he's his his uh, his torments <laughs> have yeah. probably been more rigorous and more thoroughgoing. So you're right, from a character study, I would say yeah, this is probably a uh uh a better performance perhaps, or there's there's kind of a little bit more meat to dig into. If you really want to focus on his character, but you, but there's a little bit of a retread feel at the same time. Still, yeah, I love I love the <laughs> atmosphere. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point, though, Pablo. That I I hadn't really thought about, but he does look more like a star. He takes command more often in this film than he did in I Am Waiting. He's, you know, he's got flunkies. Even he, he's got his, um, he, he's kind of in charge of of the bar, and and one of the other witnesses is you know, a bit more diminutive than him. And he, he tries to lead him through how are we going to navigate this tough situation where we've, where we are. And so, yeah, a a lot of that does, um, translate to his growing, you know, uh, attraction and magnetism. Um, it's, it's found its way more into his character as well as into his personal life. I like that. I was somewhat surprised by, uh, the relatively shocking implications of of uh, the whole uh, rape subplot with his girlfriend. I mean, uh, she's basically gang-raped in this film, as is implied. And this was somewhat some, uh, something that uh, somewhat threw me off, uh, because I can't imagine that such a outrageous plot twist uh, could happen in uh, an American film or even European film during that era. So <laughs> just uh, on a quick side note. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. I, I agree. I mean, and, and that's just, again, another interesting contrast of, of the, you know, the taboos that Japanese cinema was in the process of shattering, which I think made, you know, the discovery of these films for those relative few in the West who had access to them even more kind of invigorating to say, wow, they, they really went there or they, they, uh, they, you know, they kind of tear the veil aside 
and get into some really darker aspects of, of just hu- human nature and, and the way we unfortunately sometimes behave toward each other uh even the even the brutality of the murders i mean there's the the scene with the the young uh, joe shishido uh before he had the famous implants uh in his cheeks there he's it's a bit bits a bit part but you know he's kind of uh summoned aboard a, a train and uh, under false pretenses uh somewhere you know uh, quickly thrown right back off again it's just like wow that's some pretty hardcore stuff there you know uh any any other little tidbits about shishido's uh involvement in this film or kind of where things went for him from here well uh <laughs> first of all as you mentioned that he hasn't uh he has not yet turned into a living chipmunk basically <laughs> that <laughs> But it's very interesting to see him uh, and to see that he indeed was perhaps too handsome to be taken seriously in uh, more action-oriented roles. So if one sees him here, uh, how short he appear, how shortly he appears on screen, one can somewhat understand why he decided to underwent uh, why he underwent plastic surgery in order to appear more rough. So. That's what I got from his from his performance. Yeah, yeah. it's. Have you have you seen any Joe Shishido films? Uh, any of the Suzuki uh, uh, Branded to Kill or anything like that, Trevor? Nope. Nope. Okay. I, well, I was going to admit that here in just that, a few that's minutes. Fine. Well, <laughs> no shame in it at all. But when you talk about plots, a little hard to follow or a little bit, uh, you know bleeding into each other or having to watch a film a couple times to make sense of it well you ain't seen that, 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 that yeah. that's what I, i've come to understand i i am excited those have sat on my shelf and i sit there thinking okay <laughs> one of these days i i i i think it's 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 i mean just going by my own experience you know following suzuki's career until he gets to that kind of culminating point there's a lot of satisfaction to be found you know get, get into uh you know uh uh, Gate of Flesh and Youth of the Beast and, and Story of a Prostitute, and then get to his kind of uh, later capstones of Tokyo Drifter and Branded to Kill. Uh, to me, I know a lot of people start off with those two, and uh, and they're great. They're they're absolute classics. But I think it's just great to have the build up and to sort of see uh. what fed into that. So, so, so I'm doing this right. I, I, I exactly. So. <laughs> well, I I'll, I'll I'll just tell you. I mean, I. You're talking about these brutal acts of violence in um, in Rusty Knife, and it's total. You're right. I, I but uh, some of that kind of um, drifted away after one very memorable bit of violence in um, in, in Take Aim at the Police Van. <laughs> oh, the, oh, yeah. You might know what I'm talking <laughs> I about. I think every review brings it up. <laughs> so, so that was you know that definitely took the cake as far as surprising, outrageous violence for me, and made these these look almost tame, though they're not, and and they shouldn't be downplayed, uh, but like I'm kind of doing right now. But um, you know, so and it it's definitely intriguing. You know, this this Suzuki fellow, I I I like to take aim at the police van, so. So I'm anxious to to get into those later on and to see how Joe Shishido um, keeps going. Because yeah, I didn't. If I just watched this um, this film, uh, Rusty Knife, yeah. he's just a, he's just a side character. Oh, you yeah, know he's, he's, just, he's just I, there, there's nothing yeah. special about him. So. He's disposable. Yeah. He's he's just 
set up to be taken down, basically. Exactly. That, right. I would never um, know he became infamous for being a chipmunk just by this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us a little Tell us a little bit about uh, Toshio Masuda, the uh, director. I don't think he has any other films in the Criterion Collection, but it seems like he went on to have a pretty significant career. So, Pablo, can you tell us a little bit more about Masuda? Oh, yes. Um, Master, as I believe he is pronounced. Okay, well, that's uh, my but Midwestern if, Japanese approximation <laughs> there. Master, well, okay, thank you. As a German uh, fellow, I can sympathize. Sympath- ties with that <laughs> so uh well uh first of all master was one of the most successful directors in japanese film history he was at the end of his career considered a constant hit maker really a very solid craftsman who made dozens of films who were among the most successful of their respective years year uh, and he was perhaps not really a distinctive auteur, but yeah, more of a solid craftsman who could do anything and usually produced above average results. Uh, if there's one thing that reuni- re- uh, that unites his films, it's perhaps his enthusiasm for Western modes of filmmaking and of narration. Many of his films are reworkings or remakes of Western films. Uh, I can recommend the absolutely brilliant Velvet Hustler, also one of these uh, uh, borderless action films made during the end of uh, the genre, which is a... Could you repeat that title again? uh, Velvet Hustler. Velvet Hustler, okay, very good, yeah, okay, good. Kurenai no Nagaraboshi in Japanese, which uh, is... A reworking, reworking of Breathless, and in my opinion, even the better Breathless. I'm not all too fond of, of uh, Godard, but that's beside the point. The well, lay it down, Pablo. There you go. <laughs> the, 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 the gauntlet has been thrown. <laughs> <laughs> no, the film is absolutely entertaining and fun. You should all watch it. And Well, Toshio Master, very solid, sometimes great, sometimes mediocre. Uh, but never a weak filmmaker. All you can ask for in a journeyman filmmaker, basically. That's so, great, yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, well, good. And, um, what was the other? Oh, the other thing that is significant about this, this is a, this is a scope uh, ratio here. This is a widescreen film, whereas... Uh, I am waiting is still in kind of the classic you know, Academy ratio or four three basically. Here we've got Nikatsu's scope. I think is right at the beginning and the uh, kind of opening uh, sequence there, as they're even before the film itself starts. Uh, anything about like what was happening with Japanese cinema in terms of the widescreen format? Uh, was this kind of just a technical breakthrough here? But you definitely have a much wider canvas and and uh and japanese film really did you know exploit the widescreen quite a bit from this point forward so uh, just some thoughts you have just on kind of the advent of a new layout if you will of of, uh, filmmaking in japan well the first widescreen film in japan was uh in sorry let me ah yes 1957 uh Sadatsuko Matsuda's The Lord Takes a Bride. So really, just one year uh, after that, uh, 
widescreen was already pretty much perfected in Japanese cinema. Like with every really new technique that was uh, for the first time employed in Japanese cinema, it was uh, first used at a relatively late date and in order to give the filmmakers enough time to master the technique. Japanese filmmakers were very adamant, adamant to first uh, master a certain technical detail before they used it in their films. And, well, this I think this shows in, well, perhaps not the mastery, but the very proficient and solid use of widescreen in the film. I think we're on, a, we're on visual terms, the film is quite pleasing in its atmosphere and its uh, reworking of basically Western uh, sort of, uh, you could, yeah, visuals. Uh, or what, what, do, what, it's your, what is your take on the visuals? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I like the widescreen. I think Japanese film, when it gets to this age, just, you know, it, it to me, it draws me further in. It shows me more of the environment. Of course, Ozu kind of famously never, I don't think he ever went to widescreen. He, and that's fine. He's the old tofu maker, and <laughs> he does what he does like nobody else. But, it, it, you know, it's just, to me, yeah, it's, it's just a... a kind of a, a a bigger playground and uh you know the bar scenes the industrial landscapes uh just just again kind of the the moods of the characters all seems to just kind of jump out at you just a little bit more vividly in, in this format so uh yeah but but it did it did strike me like yeah this is because you know even in my own kind of journey through uh, the criterion collection and and all of a sudden just seeing you know this kind of broad panoramic view that was that was utilized in some really interesting and creative ways uh suzuki certainly you know played with his compositions quite a bit and just the way you know even when he got into the color films just just different fields of light and and color and uh environment and stretched and 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 played with across that you know that that wider uh format just yeah just very interesting visual possibilities being explored here and a very international uh, feel to all of these films in my opinion uh, in general if there were no uh, Japanese uh, signs or well Japanese speaking people one could take them easily for uh, a French film of the same age or or perhaps a few, few years earlier seeing that such films weren't made uh, much anymore in America at least at the time so it all has this very international vibe uh, to it which actually exemplifies uh, Nikatsu's uh, genre film output of that decade Excellent, alright well Trevor you got any more thoughts on Rusty Knife or we already move on to uh, that police fan film I'm good to move on. All right. Well, let's go ahead and make that transition. Let's uh, take aim at take aim at the police van. Uh, what do you have to say about that, Trevor? Give us a little intro there, and we'll follow it up. All right. Well, this uh, this film is quite a bit more stylized. I mean, from the from the very beginning, you see a police van driving, you know, down the dark streets, um, transporting some prisoners, 
and you're seeing it through a, a scope on a, on a rifle that's a, taking aim at the police van. And the scope moves around a little bit and, and shows you a few street signs that basically say, uh, warning, you know, accidents happen here. All the, you know, and, and kind of progressively, <laughs> as you get further down the street, the, the signs tell a little story of what's to come um, in, a playful, in a playful way. Uh, so this this film just immediately kind of starts with that uh, bit of flair that's a little bit more frenetic than what we've had in the last two, as moody and atmospheric as as Rusty Knife and I Am Waiting are. Um, you know they they had some great action scenes and the like, but this one tends to take all that up a notch, I think, and become a little bit more frazzled in its display and in what Suzuki is doing. And, you know, maybe before we begin, do do you want to introduce our director here? Um, As as you as you know, as you made me made me confess (laughs) a few minutes ago, I'm not very familiar with Sage and Suzuki other than by reputation. Um, So maybe before we get into the plot, if you if either one of you wants to to run down who we're dealing with right now as as his career's kind of still in this early phase. I know he'd been making films with Nikatsu for for a bit, um, but hadn't quite hadn't quite, it seems, began his um, his more radical phase, which was going to test their relationship. Uh, do you want to do it, uh, David, or shall I? Oh go ahead, Pablo. I think uh, you've probably got the deeper background on Suzuki. Well, Suzuki was basically a low-ranking company man at his studio who directed programmers uh, on the conveyor belt. And I like to introduce Suzuki uh, with the words or with the caption that he was the director who somehow got mad uh, at one point in his career when he just couldn't take the monotony of of uh, of directing these generic uh, pre-scripted genre films on a sometimes weekly basis and so started to make starting maybe in, 19, in the late 1950s to make films that were ever more irreverent that started to reflect uh, the stale genre mechanisms that these films uh, displayed in an ironic manner, uh, which eventually eventually led to his firing by Nikatsu after he made uh, Branded to Kill, which is a film which I believe never ha- nobody has ever made sense of. It's one of the most most irreverent and just plain insane, insane, but also play brilliant works of surrealism ever conceived, in my opinion. But he also made, uh, of course, for he made almost before he made that he made he made uh, thirty nine other films, which rank sometimes uh, to the most. Also, most irrever- irreverent genre films of Nikatsu, but sometimes were just the plain programmers that, yes, they were conceived at. Uh, I would say that Take Aim at the Police One, somehow, somewhat, it is in the middle. It t- 
takes on a generic pattern in its narrative and does not much to to reflect it in some manner. But there are little tidbits uh, that somehow anticipate uh, later irreverent Suzuki. Did you say titbits? Sorry, titbits. What's the word? <laughs> no, I, I, I'm making a bit of a joke because of I that understand. violent scene that we're talking about here oh, yes. and how <laughs> abrupt and surprising that might be. <laughs> oh, yes. yes. <laughs> well, thanks, uh, Pablo. David, did you want to say anything too? Or did I, am I cutting you no, off, Pablo? I, 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 I completely... Um you know, concur with what Pablo said. It's just it is those little stylistic bits, those those little touches that already at this relatively early stage of his career, you can see Suzuki just saying, Okay, I'm gonna take a little bit of license here with the boilerplate that they've shipped me. And and really this is a pretty uh, to me, this is a pretty clever film. Uh, it's not the kind. I, I, I wouldn't say at this point he, Suzuki had any right to say I'm bored with this crap or this is just so bland. I mean, it's a pretty frisky, lively film with all kinds of interesting little twists and turns. But even within that, you know, framework, there are bits. There, there are moments that you just sort of say that's the artist's signature right there even before anybody really gave much attention to the fact that this is a seijun suzuki film uh you you wouldn't have necessarily noticed that until he went on to sort of <laughs> fulfill his destiny and, and create the legend but yeah this is a film that has uh and in a in a and i'll say this in a positive uh you know sort of praising uh, uh statement this is there's a cartoonish quality to it that i really really enjoy because it's so like bang bang right right in your face that uh you know you don't have to really even hunch forward to say stay focused on the plot lines and the twists and turns as you might have to do a little bit with the previous two movies where especially if you're not a you know speaker of the native language and maybe familiar with the tropes quite as much you know to say oh that was a double cross right there or that was a reveal right there uh here <laughs> you you could just sort of be in a semi haze and the the points that the movie's trying to make will sort of impress themselves <laughs> upon you because of the sheer force of their delivery yeah yeah, so so you can continue on now, Trevor. <laughs> All right, no, that's yeah. that's yeah. what I wanted. Um, so so the so basically, let me put the movie in a in a nutshell, just um, as we've gotten a little bit of a sense of the context surrounding it. Um, so it begins with this uh, this police van transporting these prisoners, and there's one particular prisoner on board named Goro, who you know I think he's about to be let out on parole the next day. And he's he seems to have uh, struck up a, a pretty good friendship with the guard who's on duty, the policeman, um, Daijiro Tamon. Um, am I saying Tamon? Tamon? Tamon. Tamon. Um, Tamon is is the police officer who's who's in in on duty that night, and you know he he. 
he likes to be a little bit idealistic and say that he sees prisoners as human beings and treats them with respect. And therefore, you know, he has a pretty natural friendship with Goro. Um, but we know something is about to go wrong because we're watching a lot of this, again, through a rifle scope. And um, lo and behold, it, it it does go off. The rifle shoots through the windows. Um, the the van or the police van crashes. Um, there's a woman waiting on the street, and we're not sure too much about her yet, though it looks like Goro has... Um, maybe some connection with her. And Goro himself is writing things in the in the little foggy window. Um, and it looks like a, a, a name, A-K-I. A um, and the, there's all this little bit of mysteriousness going on here. Well, the next day, um, you know, we, we learned that a couple of the prisoners were killed, um, not Goro, and uh, Taman also survived. Everything's fine with him, except for because, uh, for whatever reason, I couldn't figure out one, um, he was found negligent in his duty that night, um, and therefore is now going on six months of, uh, of suspension from the police force. But what's he going to do with those six months? He's going to try to solve these little mysteries that he saw pop up that night. You know, who fired? Who were they trying to kill? Who was that girl? What on earth was Goro writing on the on the window? And you know he kind of starts to wander around. You get this um, this fairly classical feel of a of an investigator uh, going bit, around. Bit of a detective, even though yeah. he's a hired a private of, eye, he's taking it on himself to uh-huh. figure out uh-huh. who done it. Right. And that that reminded me of um, of Stray Dog, Akira Kurosawa's Stray Dog and um, Drunken Angel, those two films that have come out years before. And so I was I was not surprised, but maybe kind of surprised to see that um, everyone else seems to make those same connections in their reviews. <laughs> well, and, and those two definitely need to be mentioned in terms of you know important precursors to these you know film noir now there yeah. may have been others but certainly the, the the early ozu films you referenced at the beginning and then those kurosawa films really kind of are landmarks that kind of, point kind of the urban way. urban noirs and and i didn't think about them until this film this film in particular just seemed to to remind me of that maybe it's because this our central character taman is is an older man um kind of like um in in both of those films uh and, and a little bit uh, a, a little bit weary um but that's what those are you know so that's yeah, the, this the is the where Takashi i started to think Shimura of those characters there mm-hmm. yeah yeah, exactly. yeah for some dumb reason i couldn't think of his name even though he's my favorite Akira Kurosawa actor. <laughs> so thanks, David. <laughs> um, but that, that's where Take Aim at the Police Fan starts off. And, and I will say another thing um, that I, this, I, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but also came up in a lot of reviews is this kind of um, James Bondness of, of this particular title. You know, the minute that, um, that a woman gets shot in the breast with an arrow, um, you know, I, that, that didn't remind me of James Bond, but when the next scene begins with a, another woman out shooting, you know, pl- out doing some archery practice, yep. I'm like, oh, well, this is, this is Sean Connery wandering around 
and um, finding these interesting mysteries that keep on deepening. And lo and behold, you know, this is Sean Connery now in this um, <laughs> this tanker filled with gasoline, rolling down a hill oh, with yes. flames following. It. You know, all those little <laughs> things. I'm like, this is this is James Bond and Pussy right. Galore. You know, <laughs> but, but this is 1960 where James yeah, Bond this is pre- was this still is before all that. You know? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, exactly. And and um, so I, I, but I was surprised at this um, how this seemed to to precede all of that, which I would have thought came from the James Bond formula. But, um, you know, Suzuki is is playing with it here. Um, and I'm not saying this is a James Bond film, you know, in, in many other ways uh, it, it isn't. But some of those just little, the ways that the plot moves forward or some of the ridiculous situations they find themselves in, um, with the unlikeliest of people who were once enemies, but now is a is a woman in distress. You know, all that kind of um, just brought that to mind. Well, there's also that scene of the woman. Uh, I don't know if she's a singer or what she is, but she she comes in and she's kind of talking to the tough guy, and she's kind of posing. Her he's sitting behind a newspaper, and she's posing on the desk and flexing her legs and peeling her skirt back it's just like you know the, the the way she prances around it's like yeah just a little little tna moment there for uh for the enjoyment of the audience more than anything else you know and just an excuse to to throw a little uh girly action in there and yeah mm-hmm. it's all those little uh elements that are just kind of tossed in the hopper there and uh yeah a fun night out at the movies <laughs> Yeah, I, I felt this was very different from where we've been in the set so far. So, I was I'm very anxious to not not trying to close things off here, but this made me anxious to see that this wasn't just a bunch of um, you know similar plotline stories and and uh, and similar styles. You know, even though this is they are all done by various directors, I was a little worried that they might fall into just um, pot boilers that all kind of look alike. But this this was very different from where we'd been. Even if maybe some of the ideas and plot points in it, you know, who's behind the scenes really doing, all, who's pulling the strings, you know, not Blofeld, but, you know, someone kind of similar, um, you get this, uh, uh, th- those ties. But otherwise, this was a very different and um, refreshing uh, movie after, after Rusty Knife. Yes. And, well, <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, well, but that's typical for Suzuki, these uh, sometimes outrageous set pieces. We uh, are uh, we are allowed to enjoy in this film uh, because in Suzuki's films, very often things happen for the sake of them happening, for the sake of convenience. And I say this in the most uh, positive uh, way uh, possibly possible and I think that was also a thing that made the film for me I just to begin with I love how in the beginning uh, <laughs> uh, Suzuki just doesn't care about any characterization and instead we hear this inner monologue of the uh, of the more or less detective who says I should really leave this to the police but I won't and of motivation for a search so, <laughs> right. It's, so, it's, it's, it's the, 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 the first person narrative is just used as totally as a convenience just to connect a few random bits. And, and it's the kind of thing that, you know, maybe would have made Branded to kill a little bit easier to follow if he'd used that because these scenes otherwise are, there's no rational connection, but they are just 
kind of vivid moments that sort of stick in the stick in the memory and and uh, i think we're all the better off for it so so yeah any other any other kind of uh key bits there that uh, stand out to you about taking mental please i mean we we definitely talked about suzuki's growing style uh i think that 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 conclusion there <laughs> the yeah the the elaborateness of the of how they're going to set up the demise you know of, of the protagonist there well we could just shoot him right now but this is more fun <laughs> more james bond stuff yeah. so yes. we'll put him rolling down a tanker uh and then we'll we'll give him about a 35 second head start and we'll light the flames and and, 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 and you know and burning the rope as a way of uh you know fostering the escape there just uh, stretches credulity just a little bit but you know you you just kind of you're in on the joke and you're just kind of having fun with it and that's really yeah there is you're already getting to sort of see a little bit of the kind of winking ironic you know inside humor there where the genre is already beginning to you know poke fun at itself and that's that's kind of a development of of these styles or these movements within film where the conventions become so familiar that we're going to sort of turn them in upon themselves so that we just sort of we know what's coming and we're going to kind of smugly laugh at ourselves because you know we're hip enough to to to, to connect the dots before they've uh, fully been revealed so uh, but you know again this, this, these are films that i think really are made for the sake of entertainment and uh diversion and an atmosphere you know you kind of get to step into this exotic world of you know uh, you know crime the crime itself is somewhat petty it's not certainly not the high stakes you know cataclysms threatened by james bond supervillains uh, these are people that are just basically looking for a little extra you know cash or sex or power or you know prestige but it's it's all on the kind of the 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 small time hustle level but but the emotions and the and the stakes on a personal uh, you know relationship level i guess are all pretty much there i mean you might live you might die you might be in charge you might be the flunky uh, that's kind of what's going on here and i guess i get it does you know relate to the lives of the audience uh, a little bit more here and 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 i think uh, take aim at the police fan is is probably a film that you could say is not nearly as targeted towards the youth audience per se as it is against it's 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 targeted towards just a a general movie audience that by at this point uh you know, even a few years into the uh, japanese noir movement or you know subgenre or whatever you might think it is uh now there's just a there's just viewers who say yeah this looks fun this looks interesting uh this looks like it should be you know kind of engaging and and uh, thrilling in its own way and i think that's that's what you see you know suzuki's asked to deliver that kind of a product and i think he does a good job at it well what you like to hear just for a for a second uh, a few notes on michitabo mizushima who plays the leading uh, character in this film yeah i was actually gonna ask you about that I'm uh, because yeah? I know that David in his review didn't really like him. <laughs> oh really? Oh really? Uh, I'm I'm very fond of Michitaba Mizushima. Uh, he's at the time of his death, he was one of the uh, 
great uh, old man in Japanese cinema with no less than uh, 65 year, five years of acting uh, uh, through every stage of his life. And in my opinion, he was one of these actors who really managed to age very gracefully, gracefully by always transitioning uh, seamlessly into the roles that were befitting of, of his age. So at, at first, in the 20s, he played youths, then he became a matinee idol during the 30s and 40s. And in the end of his career, at the end of his career, he played grandfathers and I actually quite like him. I, he's, well, no actor who tries to give his character a particular emotional depth. Uh, he plays stereotypes, but due to his presence and his uh, very, very distinguished uh, facial features and presence, I think he is able to make even the most uh, cliched of characters somewhat memorable. memorable. So uh, I actually quite like him uh, in this film. What didn't you like about him? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know... Just, just, just really, I, quick, I just, really quick, really quick, be, being the outsider here, <laughs> David initially forgot to put a picture of him in his review <laughs> and right. stepped back and said, I didn't even put a picture of him. That's how forgettable he is. So when you say memorable, I was just kind of uh, laughing to myself <laughs> that's, here. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah, I, I just uh, you know, clicked on that review to say, what in the world was I saying or thinking back then? So uh, I was a young, naive, callow, foolish. <laughs> no, I, I, I think probably he is a little bit on the older side and maybe you know coming off of uh, the expectation of Yujiro or even the Shishido films where I'd seen these kind of younger, a little bit more virile and vigorous action figures. Yeah, he is a little bit more weathered, but I don't know. I don't have a particular problem with his uh, with his performance at this point. And uh, yeah, so I'll let my review stand for my take at the moment there. And maybe, you know, uh, again, I was probably a little bit more distracted by the slinky women, that, that uh, exotic dancer and her little memorable bit there kind of you know, dazzling in her uh, little hip swiveling performance and all that, but uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I'll say I'll take your uh, much better informed uh, word for it, Pablo, and and give this guy benefit of the doubt at this point. Well, and he he's only in one other um, Criterion Collection release, um, and I've seen it. It's uh, the Lone Wolf and Cub Baby Cart to Hades. Oh, okay. uh, but I I have, I have no idea. Oh. Me neither. I, I have who to he was in that. Admit no, but he also plays uh, the main role in Suzuki's Underworld Beauty. Uh, by the way, this is one sign that he wasn't that big of a star, despite playing uh, leading roles, because Suzuki was allowed to work with him. Uh, again, Suzuki, a very low-ranking uh, studio director, company man, who never, for example, directed just one film with Yuchiro Ishihara. Uh, in contrast, Toshimura's master, the director of Rusty Knife, directed 25 films with uh, Yuchiro Ishihara. So, well, and I believe that's one reason why Suzuki could uh, have this, uh, those little surrealist, ironic uh, bits in his films, simply because as he was 
basically making C-movies in terms of the budget, uh, studio executives would basically overlook his uh, little eccentrics because uh, they wouldn't lose much money in that way or the other way. So Suki had yeah. Been, yeah. And he'd been somewhat pigeonholed, it seems. Like he was just kind of one of the the rank and file and and uh you know suzuki i think has gone on to have he actually you know even though he was on hiatus for a significant number of years uh, he did return to filmmaking you know a couple was it, a couple decades I, I, was he still doing things in the 70s and 80s but on uh, a smaller scale yeah television work yeah television work so so he's still you know he's still kept active in the industry but but was not a feature film well he did eventually come back and and of course he was you know, heralded and and kind of made a, a bit of a legendary figure. So he sort of he definitely had the last laugh over the studio bosses that never gave him the time of day. Uh, but you know, you, you, that's the thing you you get the sense of a guy whose whose creativity and his talent was just not sufficiently recognized. So he just kind of had to take matters into his own hands. And and uh, yeah, I, I'm glad that he got his redemption. Uh, even though it looked like he'd gotten a pretty raw deal uh, in, you know, when he was in his creative prime. Exactly, and he's still alive at age 93. So he has all the benefits of being old and uh, and uh, celebrated, Absolutely. which is always good. <laughs> very, very good. Well, Does he have the money? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, I think good he's question. all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he is, but uh, you know, I think of the the Nikatsu bosses probably still thinking, eh, "At least we came out with the money." You know? Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure his contract at the time was just you know a, a, a journeyman wage, you know. But uh, I am sure he's found ways to get compensation out of all that. So yeah, well, and, yeah. and my my point there wasn't to be like um, to cut him down. It was more just to look at the difference in in um, you know a commercial. Uh, film production versus just kind of an artistic film production and and where those meet and where they don't meet and he seems to be a good example of where they just didn't meet for for a long time exactly yes all right well i think we've pretty had a great conversation any any last little insights as we uh, kind of prepare to take a little bit of a break before uh, next time we get together uh, you know these are three films are i think pretty foundational with the, with the next two we're going to see the genre has developed somewhat uh, the stylism has uh, has become more refined and more pronounced uh, it'll only be two movies in the next episode but lots to talk about in those two uh, and i think uh, they they will lead into another excellent discussion but i'll kind of give you two a chance to kind of summarize your thoughts as we uh, draw this episode down well above all uh when i first first heard that the box set uh, was to be released uh i was overjoyed uh, because it's really useful uh in order to disprove a certain attitude which i often read in the western reception of japanese cinema you can perceive a sort of condescending way uh, of talk, talking about the commercial standard product of Japanese cinema in many writings by uh, Western scholars. For example, Donald Ritchie, the great uh, scholar on Japanese cinema, once wrote that uh, no country makes worse crime films than Japan. 
than the Japanese or the no people. And, well, I always wonder on what this perceived inferiority on Japanese uh, genre cinema, cinema is based on. And in my opinion, it's basically Western arrogance. Uh, because uh, I, be, I think, if nothing else, we can see in these films that they were that they in every way can be considered at least equal to their Western counterparts. And in this sense, I'm very happy whenever such a box set which, uh, this, which showcases the standard product of Japanese cinema uh, is released because, well, it disproves all stereotypes and misconceptions about Japanese, uh, about Japanese film, yes? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there's a lot of creativity. There's a lot of ingenuity, uh, engaging characters, uh, plots that, you know, keep me intrigued to see what's going to happen next. Uh, you know, nice cinematic moments. I, I You know, th these films deliver the whole package uh, without, you know, overreaching in terms of loftiness or profundity or sociological critique. I mean, you can definitely dig in and, and find messages and and statements about you know values and how we live and how people interact and connect with each other or sometimes fail to do so you know which I, I always enjoy those elements of films but these are not films that are trying to make you know a profound philosophical case one way or the other they're just saying hey here's you know here's an angle on on, on how life goes and how we have to rebound from disappointments and how we often find that the people we trust uh, prove out to be unworthy of that trust. And, you know, there's corruption and greed and all those <laughs> basic emotional drives that, you know, have, have created the, the grist for so much great cre creative fiction of literary and theatrical, uh, you know, varieties over, over the centuries. So this is just a, a particular place and time, uh, but it's a, it's an interesting society that, that, uh, that produced these films and, and I'm glad to have these relics. And yeah. And I, one of the questions maybe I have for you real quick, Pablo is why, why these particular films? I mean, I, I, I take it you've seen a lot more of the other, um, you know, kind of surrounding films from featuring some of these same actors and directors. But do you think Criterion kind of got the cream of the crop as far as these three or the, the five in the set overall? Well, well, not generally, no. But all of them very well exemplify a certain part of uh, of the films that Chuchiko, uh, sorry, Nikatsu was making at the time. You know, the films with Yuchiro Ishihara, of course, the films with Suzuki, which were on uh, the scale of uh, of commercial success, much more low than those made by Ishihara. And then, of course, the later film with starring uh, uh, what's Joshi uh, Shido. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so, well, they are really good at showcasing just what Nikatsu Mokukuzeki action film was, uh, how. Uh, how varied and how eclectic it was. Uh, but, well, there are brilliant, other brilliant, uh, even greater Nikatsu no Noir, so to say. <laughs> there are, so, uh, if I may, uh, one, one is, for example, Velvet Hustler, 
uh, as I've, I've quickly touched up upon the film before, then uh, there's Gangster VIP, also made by Toshio Masta, and perhaps everything goes wrong. Per one of my favorite Suzuki films. So this would be free for those that want to uh, venture further, further into the world of yeah, Nikatsu action. Excellent. Excellent recommendations. And I'll, I'll see if I can find some kind of literature or links uh, to, to put in the show notes just to kind of get us to those three films as well. Trevor, I'll give you kind of the last word as we kind of close things down here. Any thoughts? Okay. Well, just a quick um, follow-up on that. Everything Goes Wrong is on Filmstruck ah, for people okay. who are interested. So, Excellent. Which I am because it's, kind of, it's a 1960 one. So maybe that should be my next – Stop. Um, I think I'm going to fit that one year. in. Yeah, let's. Uh, maybe so. we can talk about that a little bit on our next episode. Uh, even though it's not an official part of the eclipse set, but uh, I'm okay to expand hey, our uh, conversation. As long as just the boss bit. doesn't mind. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, but no, I, I am very excited to keep going with this set. I've I've heard only good things about what's to come. Um, in particular. Um, Occult is my passport. So, I, and I haven't seen either of them yet. I'm uh, I'm gonna dig into them this week, and I'm really excited. This is this has been fun. And Pablo, I, I feel like I could ask you almost any random question about Japanese cinema, and you'd provide a a, a great answer. Not just a factual, um, you know, the the fact uh, factual answer, but also with some good context and analysis. I I love uh, love that you are able to join us. Thank you so much. I'm glad we have another one next week. <laughs> Thank you very much. I enjoyed it uh, very Well, we do look forward to uh, you know reconnecting. Uh, we're, not, we're not completely scheduled. Hopefully, we can work it out for next weekend. If not, we'll push it into February a little bit there. But uh, we do thank you all for listening in. And for uh, any feedback you want to send our way, find us on Twitter at Eclipse Viewer. Uh, maybe you can drop a comment or two on our social media feeds, on Criterion Cast, on Facebook, or wherever. So uh, we do look forward to hearing your thoughts and uh, even more insights that you might have about uh, the great uh, tradition of Japanese film noir. Uh, so that's it. We're signing off for now. We'll talk to you all soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>